Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. This week, I have venture capitalist Kyle Harrison from Contrary, and we talk about the doom and gloom in venture capital. He's written a piece called VC Contagion, Is Venture Capital Killing Itself? (laughs) You can imagine how enticing I found that topic. I just gone to the Slow Ventures Conference where there was a lot of fear among venture capitalists, young VCs earlier in their careers about their future among doom and gloom everywhere outside of AI. And then I think everyone is very aware that there's a lot of hype in AI that feels perhaps unsustainable. And so there is a lot of soul searching about that. Kyle, he's a former investor at Index and KOTU. And we dug into information sharing and private information in the private markets. Contrary publishes reports on SERPs and venture capital. So in some ways, they're a kindred spirit in terms of exposing information about startups to the world. At the same time as a venture capital firm, they give private advice to their startup founders. So we talked about how he balances that and also got philosophical about the differences between the public and private markets. And then finally, we talked about artificial intelligence in earnest and interrogated how to find opportunity in a moment of so much hype and so much large spending from hyperscaler companies like Microsoft and Google. Before we get to the episode, I want to thank our sponsor, Vanta. Newcomer is brought to you by Vanta. To close and grow major customers, you have to earn trust. But demonstrating your security and compliance can be time-consuming, tedious, and expensive until you use Vanta. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for the most sought-after security and privacy standards. Save time and money on compliance with Vanta's enterprise-ready trust management platform. For a limited time, newcomer listeners get $1,000 off Vanta. Go to vanta.com forward slash newcomer to get started. That's vanta.com forward slash newcomer. Thanks so much to Vanta. And now my conversation with Kyle Harrison at Contrary. Kyle, thanks so much for being on the Newcomer Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited. Yeah, VC in disarray. I don't know. I was just at a Slow Ventures at a conference in New York with a bunch of more sort of, I don't know, up and comer. The concept was, I guess, the partners doing the work or the sort of junior people sort of hustling. And it definitely felt like the nature of VC itself was in question, which I think if you're a young professional, you never want to hear, but was sort of an interesting mood. And you've been writing on this topic. How fucked is VC right now? Or what's sort of your mood on it? So I've been writing now for a little over a year. It started as like philosophical questions and has mounted into like existential dread over the last 18 months, right? which was very timely. I was just kind of thinking about stuff and then it's become very prominent and lots of people thinking about it. But my very first piece was this idea, like I called it the unbundling of venture capital. Like that was one of the first pieces I wrote that kind of took off. And in it, there's this really good quote from Don Valentine where he's talking about companies, but he talks about like when we invest in companies, we look for specific points of disruption because when there is disruption in a business model or an industry, there's confusion. And when there is confusion, there is the most significant opportunity. Right. So I actually feel that way about venture now. Like I actually do feel like there is opportunity for people who want to be creative. People who are like, no, I'd really like to keep it the sort of couple of white dudes in a room making all the decisions just based on gut and our influence. It's like, well, I don't think that's going to stick around. But for people who actually want to like do things differently and try and create new products for founders and stuff, like 
I think there's actually a lot of opportunity there, but there is in the interim of disruption, a lot of that existential dread. You would certainly rather be growing into a sector that's, I don't know, the pie overall is growing. Do you think the pie in venture is growing? You know, a classic thing in VC is to say, oh, you know, there's too much money. People don't want to pay the high prices. You'd rather be the only investor who can take all the time in the world. You know, when I started covering VC, this was the Andreessen Horowitz coming out of the gate and like paying too much. And, you know, obviously we saw it with SoftBank and Tiger. And while some of those were wrong prices, overall, like VC weathered that and kept going. So you can grow fatigued of the, is there too much VC money? But now with the real sort of, I don't know, winter and everything but AI, it feels for once that maybe I, you know, there is too much VC. I don't know. Do you think the pie is going to grow or shrink? So I feel like there are two big trends that are like correlated, but not exactly the same thing. And sometimes when people can conflate things that are happening because of one with the other or whatever, on the one side you have, and I wrote this piece called the Blackstone of Innovation, basically unpacking a little bit of this, like the AUM expansion. I think of it as picture, you know, any chart you've seen about income inequality in the US and you have this sort of like the richest get richer. I think that there is a function of like income inequality, so to speak, in venture, where I call them capital agglomerators, where are, there are these firms who have built their business models largely, whether they say it explicitly or not, they've built their business model around aggregating as much capital as possible, a la Blackstone. And it largely becomes a fee business. I can't remember... I read somebody was talking about this recently, but this idea when like when you look at some of these big PE shops that have gone public and how they trade, people basically discount carry entirely. Like there's hmm. some aspect of it, but they don't really for like a public markets caring about a PE firm as a publicly traded company, they don't super care about carry. It is 100% based on the value of their fees. <laughs> and so their job is just how much can you get a cutoff? Brutal. Seriously, yeah, literally. Right. Like, I mean, at, at some point, like LPs wise up, and if you are just a terrible product, they're going to stop paying those fees. That's another big trend that's happening in family offices and things like that, where people are sick of the fees on fees on fees that they're paying for, right. you know, a tiny slice of a thing. And so they're starting to pull back, and that's going to change. But for folks that have good names, products, but it's you fees. know, I wrote, I wrote Andreessen Horowitz, you know, probably had like 500 million some in management fees a year. I mean, you look at NEA raising a $6 billion fund where their whole sort of message seems to be like slow, steady, reliable. We don't have to, you know, it can be sort of consistent almost more than, you know, astronomical returns like a USV or something. And then obviously Lightspeed has raised a huge fund. General Catalyst is an enormous fund now. And you talk to sort of smaller VCs, it's like, is that even... VC anymore if you're investing such huge amounts of money with totally different if you're investing in Stripe at you know 50 billion like Thrive and others did like is that venture capital or yeah and it's not even like you know you talk about name names like to some extent like they name themselves right there is a saying that like your fund size is your strategy anybody who is managing 10 plus billion dollars that is the strategy. Like you can't earn the type of return. You can't earn five, 10x returns on multi-billion dollars of capital. Like that just doesn't happen. Like it's taking this old framework of like you have a small venture fund, and if you hit it big, there's the power law where you can have 10, 1500x whatever returns. That doesn't work when you're allocating billions and billions. Because even the hits, when they generate, you know, a huge amount, like I remember 
the like sine waves of at first the information was criticizing Andreessen because their returns were so so, and then Coinbase went public and they returned their like entire AUM on their right. Coinbase position alone, and now that's come down, but they did sell, and like there is these sine waves. It's a it's just a different like I don't know that it is. It's not public equities per se. It's not like venture classic. It is something in the middle. And like the term growth equity has been really bantied around and stuff and, and sort of misused. So I don't know the perfect way to like articulate what the strategies are. I tie it more to like, what are the return focuses? And when you look at these massive capital agglomerators, like they're totally okay with two, three X returns because people who are trying to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars into one fund at one time, they're fine to have two, three time, two X returners, right? Like they don't need 10 X returns on that size of capital. Yeah. So to try and like distill this, and then I think to return to the how fucked is VC question, like there's one, there are these huge funds, right? That we've sort of been talking about, which is like one vertex. The other, I would say is like, I don't know, the momentum investor sort of category or like, you know, you have at one end of the spectrum, any of these firms rushing into AI, right or wrong. I mean, Spark is clearly wants to be known for paying high prices to AI, believes in it. But like, that's sort of like a return of momentum investing. And then on the other hand, you have like the true sort of, we're going to be contrarian, I don't know, sort of the luxe posture of the world where it's like- Thesis driven. Not necessarily. Right, exactly. And yeah, I don't know. How do you see that overlaying on this sort of like capital or not piece where it's the sort of conventional wisdom versus sort of, I don't know, counter to- yeah. So Bill Gurley had this line that I quote a lot. I quoted in the piece I shared with you. It's back from like 2016, but he talks about how like in you know the 90s, if a company had raised 30 million bucks before they went public, that was crazy. Now it's like they've raised way more than that on standard. That's a series A, like 30 million is a series A in some cases. And so there's all of this capital was going into these companies. Again, 2016, like this has only gotten worse since then. But all this capital going into all these companies, and he talks about how it makes these just like voraciously hungry unicorns that have built their models around sustainability. And in that same piece, I talk a lot about this like sine wave of how long can you maintain sustainability or unsustainability? And venture has just allowed that to like be prolonged where you can stay unsustainable for a really long time. And then where you get to the point where like you have crap like Dara at Uber, you know, freaking whatever, $30 billion of revenue or whatever, saying a couple months ago, maybe a year ago now, basically like, hey, like we need to, this next phase is going to be different. We need to take a step back and we need to figure out if our unit economics really work before we go big. Oh and it's God, like, right. and it's like, what is the definition of right. big if not Uber? Right. But like venture has just allowed these companies to remain in unsustainable territory for a really long time. And then all of a sudden overnight, they have to make this shift. And it's like, especially when they're big, they don't shift like that. And so I feel like that is a huge force that venture has allowed. Now the question is like, you know, venture, the outcome for venture is going to be dependent on, we have a generation of really cash hungry businesses. Can they turn off the cash hunger and still continue to grow and still be big outcomes right. and stuff like that. And if they do turn off the cash hunger and they go on a diet and they still can become big outcomes, that's the real existential question is like, oh crap, you're telling me we didn't need to funnel hundreds of millions of dollars into a company to get it to be a multi-billion dollar outcome. They could have done that anyway, which is basically the gospel that Paul Graham has been preaching since 2013, where it's like, hey, like there's going to be situations where more money is not going to help you or you could grow without it, in which case don't raise money or definitely don't raise a ton of money 
And everybody's just been like, ah, it's just what you do. But that might you have, change. You have great illustrations of this. I would almost put it as does blitz scaling work in a non-zero interest rate environment, right? And also, if you were blitz scaling, can you come back from it? I mean, that's, I think, the question with the Uber Airbnbs. Because as you chart out, it's like VC made businesses maybe that were impossible possible, but are they sustainable now that they made them sort of possible, right? Or were they just possible because... You know, that Bill Gurley loves the, I think there's an SNL sketch where it's like, you know, if you get the bank that gives somebody, you know, $2 for a dollar, like people will take that trade all day and customers are pretty rational. Drivers are pretty rational. If you're going to pay them more than it's sustainable to work, then yeah, for a while, it's going to be a great business. I mean, well, I that, like that top line looks right, amazing, right, right? right? Like it looks, if you're just focused on the top line, that's an amazing business. I mean, on, on the other hand, like Lyft is dying right? It's like crashing. They clearly are trying to sell it. Like the market cap is tiny. The founders are gone. That could give Uber an opportunity to actually be sort of a nice monopoly business like so many tech people like. And I personally think Uber has gotten to the point where it's, you know, it's working on some level. Do you disagree or you think it's like... It is working in the sense... So I talk... I find myself all the time talking about like hungry, hungry hippos. Like if that's the game, if it's just like open your mouth as much as you can and take as much as you can, that's the game. Uber's crushing it at that. And I think it's also an argument for like in a commodity market, which for a long time, I remember, you know, 2014, would have been like 2013, 2014, like Uber and Lyft, investors in Uber and Lyft used to make the argument that it was not a commodity, that they offered very different experience. It was very much the black (laughs) car versus the your buddy with a car, right? Remember the pink mustaches? Like they tried to be super different products and they have entirely commoditized. And so if you're going to go chase a high volume, low value commodity, there is an argument for like, spend like a drunken sailor, sprint as fast as you can, get everywhere as quickly as possible. So you're the only thing that people look for. In that commodity market, they did that really well. Did they need to, you know, I mean, they've lost $30 billion or whatever since they went public, like just since they went public, not even including all the money they spent before they went public. That's a huge amount of capital for the value that they have is like the long-term blended return on capital. Does that equation make sense? I'm not sure. But like the early investors made a crap ton of money. And so for them, perfect mix for the LPs in those early funds, perfect makes sense. For the early executives that made a ton of money, perfect makes sense. The sort of greater fool's game, right? The who gets left holding the bag. Like, is Uber going to stick around forever as a long-term sustainable company? It hasn't yet proven that it can repeatedly prove profitable results. Like, I think it could get there. And if Lyft goes away, that makes it even easier and stuff where you get into this monopoly situation. So I'm definitely not like going out and shorting Uber, but there's a broader question of like, was that the best capital allocation output equation that we've ever seen? And I feel like the answer is probably no. Right. And, you know, just to put a line under that, you know, some of the core Midas list driving VC investments, you know, Coinbase, Uber, WeWork, just some of the the iconic ones don't pan out as sort of lasting companies. I mean, Snowflake's obviously a great investment, but, you know, it falls dramatically. And so much of sort of the narrative adventure gets written and then these companies don't sustain. I mean, Coinbase for Andreessen is, is a dramatic one just in that, I mean, ultimately their job is to return money to investors. And if they, to the extent, you know, I think they got out at least 
4 billion pretty quickly. Thankfully for everybody involved, it was a wonderful direct listing. So the rules allow much quicker selling than a traditional IPO. But yeah, yeah, you know, just some of these, the big wins that define the venture returns don't even sustain, which you know, doesn't give you faith in sort of, I guess, the size of the venture opportunity. Well, and there's definitely like a generational shift in the kinds of companies that got built. And I don't even know that these arguments, because to the same point we were making about Uber, I'm not saying that Uber is a bad business. I think that there is a question about the allocation and return of capital. Like if you isolate it to like early investors, early LPs, awesome. Like, but when you look at it on a global beginning to end of life basis, I don't think that was a great one, right? And there's this generational shift where you look at these companies that were built to be, I mean, I think you also, the other difficulty is that a lot of the like best companies in tech that have been built over the last 20 years, a lot of them were like very rare borderline monopolies. And you've got the Facebook and Google and Microsoft and Apple and stuff like that. I feel like those are even like difficult for me to like put in the same bucket because they're so rare. The likelihood of building one of those is always so astronomical, even for venture, so astronomical. So that's like a class unto itself. But then you have the like Adobe's and Workdays and Salesforce's of the world, sort of first gen SaaS products and stuff. And it's like those companies, I would view those as like solid, sustainable, your grandpa's SaaS companies, like just really good salt of the earth companies, right? And it's like, I don't know, do they build companies like that anymore? Because you even look at stuff like Twilio for a long time, Darling Company did not have a sustainable profile. Like its ability to turn a real profit is based on this like carrier network that's constantly charging huge fees, always has low gross margins, has always said, ah, yes, but its scale will be so much better never proved true. It's like, I don't right. know. I don't know that that was a good, like doesn't even mean that Twilio is a bad business, but for how it was capitalized to the output that it can eventually produce, I don't think that was a great outcome. I think businesses like Snowflake and Datadog are exceptional businesses, but there's also arguments all the time about like, could they have been that without a huge amount of capital? Did they need to be as big? Could they have grown more sustainably longer term and in the long run be better businesses? I don't know, but it feels like there is more opportunity to build companies like that that have a, you know, I love the like, for, you know, what, say what you will about Alibaba. I think they've got their own issues and stuff, but I always loved the like Alibaba 100 year vision. And it's like nobody, nobody in Silicon Valley has a 100 year vision. Like nobody talks that way. I really wish we did that more. I want to talk about AI, but we'll talk about it later in the conversation, how it fits into this. But I mean, you know, you are a VC in this moment where you're expressing a lot of skepticism. Like, talk a little bit about contrary and how do you sort of mix? You know, I get to be skeptical, but I don't have to turn around and invest. Like, how do you be contrary and then decide where to invest? Yeah. So, another sort of, if like <clears throat> ragging on venture is somewhat like something I do a fair bit in my writing, <laughs> another concept I talk about all the time is this idea of like product led venture firms. And basically everybody like, you know, rolls their eyes at that. Like anytime any venture fund talks anything about differentiation, everybody's just kind of like, yeah, whatever, money's money and you have <laughs> nice marketing and your brand is whatever. But when I talk about product-led VCs, it's not, you know, lip service, but it's also not like AI bot. You know, I saw, I can't remember the name of the fund, but there's a fund in Europe that's a little bit doing this, like creating an AI bot that maybe doesn't tell them yes or no, but basically like ingests all the information. And it's like, I don't think it's that. And I don't think it's just like hand wavy stuff. 
I think it's just clearly articulating a value proposition for like, what is the job to be done that a founder might have and why do they hire your money? And one of the biggest problems in the capital agglomerator world. And just to, just before you get into this, you were at KOTU and Index, right? I mean, you've seen traditional venture, just to give you a little like cred. You get like sort of that pitch. And so this is having seen that experience, some of your view here. That's right. And again, like it's no discredit to these firms that I've worked for. Everybody that I've worked with has been really great. Like it's more a function of like the broader landscape. And you basically, what you have is this race for everyone to become the everything story and venture where, I don't know, name me a company that Andreessen says, like, that's not a fit for us. Maybe it's not like they pass because of metrics or because of founder or whatever, but just like, this is a company that does this at this stage. Is there a single one that a firm like Andreessen would say, oh, we don't really do that. It's like, absolutely not. We'll raise a fund for that. Right. It'll be totally separate and it's going to be great. American dynamism. If it's good for America, it'll be an investment. Yeah. And again, like, I mean, this might be good for us, for the country. I guess I should cheer for, you know, I don't know the Saudis or whoever wasting their money on like building up pro-America companies, but. Anyway, but a very broad mandate. That's right. And I know Catherine and I really like those guys. And I think that is a strategy and stuff, but I think it becomes really difficult. Like when you try to be everything for everyone, it becomes really difficult to be really good at a specific thing. And the way that they've tried to do it, I call it sort of fiefdoms where these large firms have created fiefdoms within their empire. And so you have kind of a Christics and fiefdom and crypto and, you know, the American dynamism team, whatever. Sequoia has done the same thing. But a lot of those folks, I think they struggle to have like a really clear, articulate product. And so what they become is just like, well, that's brand value. Like if I can attach the Sequoia name to my company, Mark Andreessen calls it borrowed credibility, right? And that's totally legitimate. Like there is a world in which like just having borrowed credibility is enough that if that VC never called you back, but that helped you close customers because people know that name, right? that's a product. Like that's fine for that to be your product. But I think what you have is like, that's these firms... And they have argumentatively like, you know, big groups of capital, maybe some brand value, whatever. And then you have this sort of like, in size at least, like long tail, sort of mid-ground, long tail, whatever. And I think the folks that are in the biggest trouble are folks that have no discernible value proposition, where they have no way to articulate, here is why you hire us. And if you come to us and you say, I want you to do this, and we can say, hey, we're not the best fit for that. One of the things I respected about Index is that of a lot of the like most successful venture firms, of which Index is certainly one, I would say Index was one of the most focused of the sort of top firms, right? They didn't raise, they have a multi-billion dollar growth fund, but it's not a $10 billion growth fund, right? There was a lot of deals that they just didn't chase, didn't get into a lot of spaces. They didn't really do that much in crypto. There's a lot of things that they just remain focused. And I always respected that You know, several of the partners would always say, hey, if you want somebody who's going to write you a massive check and never call you, Awesome. There are firms who will do that. That's not us. Like, we're not going to do that. Whereas other firms are like, I'll take that. If you want me to be super involved, I'll take that. Like, I'll do whatever you want. Whereas trying to have a very focused mandate becomes more valuable. It's just a question of like, well, how valuable is that product? And I like that world better when VCs are held accountable for like, can you actually articulate a value proposition? And that's what we try and do at Contrary is have a really specific value proposition that's a fit for some people and not others. I think of you all as doing you know, great writing about startups and venture capital. You have these reports on private startups. It seems like everybody gets that, right? Even startups you don't invest in. What's sort of the distinction between what I would sort of cynically, and I would apply this to myself. In some ways, I'm a content marketing business with, oh, maybe I had my first event. Like that is like my first thing where the content marketing 
sell something. Obviously, I have more of a media purist. But if you were to think cynically as a business person, right? You put out this content, it builds you a brand, you can sell them something else. I sell them itself. And then I guess an event, you sell them, we can invest in you. But what do they get that's differentiated from other startups after they're part of your portfolio? Yeah. So we actually think about our content because we do have a lot. So we have at least two series. So contrary research is a big effort. You kind of talked about a little bit. But we also have Foundations and Frontiers, which is going deep into specific technology, not always specific companies, but like deep into AI, deep into batteries, deep into satellites, whatever. But that content is, I would think of it like a skew within our broader product offering. The core of Contrary and the way that we think about it fairly differently is we think of ourselves as very people-centric investors, which is another thing that everybody says, but we kind of put our effort and our money where our mouth is. So for Contrary, we started years ago where the thesis was, if we can identify the sharpest people in the world as early as possible, sometimes years before they start companies, and build an offering that is valuable to them throughout their career, we have this unfair advantage to work with them as they build the next generation of great companies. And so this started as even finding people as early as like undergrad and grad school who wanted to be founders someday. They had other ways of demonstrating that they had you know high slope in their career, that they were really ambitious, whatever it was. And we'd identify them and then we'd work with them in school and they would be scouts with us and they'd help us find companies. But it was also a way to help introduce them to the world of startups. And then they graduated and we built a talent function and we helped them find their first jobs. We helped them with comp negotiation. We helped them think about all those things. And then they got to the point where they said, hey, you know, maybe I want to you know, join an early stage startup, not a bigger company or whatever. And so we started doing this sort of placement where it helped them think about how are different private companies positioned. And then when they finally after, sometimes we know people for five years, five, six years before they ever start a company. Once they start a company, it's like, great, we want to be your first check. We can help introduce you to co-founders. We can help you with early customers, whatever it is. We want to be on that journey even years before you start a company. And so two things, like number one, contrary research came out of that, which was this idea where we have these you and now we've built our community to about 500 people. Of that 500 person community, often we get the question of, hey, I mean, these are sharp people. They don't really necessarily need our help getting jobs. It's more like they like having a trusted person in their corner as they think about all the opportunities they have. Right. And so they might say, hey, I've got job offers to these three private companies, one Series B, one Series A. How do I think about them? You know, one Stripe, whatever. How do I think about those businesses? Like, I, I know the people, I know the product, I like the people, but what's the investor's perspective? And we would do it ad hoc where we'd say, well, here's how to think about it. Here's the upside. Here's the opportunity. But we eventually, it was like, let's productize this and turn it into a function. And so Contrary Research was born to give these people perspective on these companies as they sort of traverse their career. But the second piece of it was also why I joined Contrary in the first place, which, you know, Code 2, Index, I'd been doing later stage, Series A, Series B, and beyond stage investing. And so when these people start their company, I'm not always the best help for them. I haven't done pre-seed and seed in a long time, at least not in a dedicated way. That was Contrary's bread and butter. But what we started to notice was, hey, when you pay attention to a lot of really sharp people, where they go is actually a pretty strong signal. And so I think five of the first 50 employees at Ramp came from Contrary. And so we saw that and we thought, there's something special here. We should invest in this company. And so we invested in the Series B of Ramp. Not a huge check, right? But an opportunity to sort of put our money behind these people we think are really sharp. And even from the Series B, that's worked out really well, right? Similarly, we had, I think, you know, if six, seven or eight people at Retool, we've had a handful of people at Anduril, a bunch of folks at Stitch. Like we start to see these companies and then we have the opportunity to not only place great people there and stay close to them, but also go invest in those companies. So I joined to like build out that Series A plus sort of practice because before we were doing it in SPVs. But the whole product is that we want to find people and have offerings for them, SKUs, if you will, 
that are relevant at any stage of their career. Even if they build their first company, they sell it, they want to start another company. Eventually, we want to grow to be relevant at every point in their career. What's the fund size and sort of the round focus? Our funds historically have been, call it 100 million or so. That's grown every fund. We'll lead pre-seed and seed, and then we'll participate at Series A and beyond. We're rarely leading later stage rounds. It's more a function of folks bring us into the syndicate. Number one, because either a lot of times we've already helped hire people there before we ever invest, or they know our network and they want to invest from it. And so they'll bring us into a round to get access to that talent community. How are you playing sort of this downturn in terms of pace of investing? So the one benefit that we have is that contrary historically, even before I got here, never had a lot of stuff that got caught up in the sort of runaway valuations and things like that. So there hasn't actually been a lot of like, we have to deal with the scar tissue of things that happened that got a little crazy. And now we have to come back from the hangover. We haven't had too much of that in the companies we've invested in. And then as we help the companies we have invested in or as we continue to invest, I think our biggest focus is like, it's still fairly first principles. We haven't gotten super heavy into a lot of the similarly, like a lot of the AI hype and companies that are raising in the same ways. We've made investments. I think we're you know pretty excited about some of the things that are happening in open source AI. We have some portfolio companies playing there around tooling and whatnot. So we have invested, but we haven't gotten crazy where it's like at any cost, we need to do these things. And so a lot of it is like just first principles of like, we are trying to find people that we think are exceptional, help them build businesses that people actually care about, actually solve problems and do it in a meaningful way that is not solving for the sort of short-term benefit, which is not like, that's not rocket science, but it is like arguably contrarian in a world where like people are still struggling. I mean, you have a generation of investors, if you think about it, like myself included, like I started investing within this bull market. And so there's a lot of folks who have had their entire education be built around pretty irresponsible ways of building companies. And for me, I think part of it too is like I had been a founder before I got into investing. And so I know know how scary it is to like run something up in a way that makes you feel like I have no idea what to do with this now. And so I feel like I've always had that hesitance of like, or that hesitation around just like ripping off all the safety measures and stuff. Right. So I feel like just my constitution has been more balanced or whatever. I don't know, but it's weirdly contrarian to just say, we want to build companies that can be around for a long time rather than companies that can light a whole bunch of money on fire. And like, who knows? Maybe they'll be here in a year. Maybe they won't. You're still participating in the venture capital model, right? If you invest in a seed company, you're doing an assessment of whether it will raise a series A or you're saying, will this company sort of have the cash flow, but not need a series A because the latter category just isn't sort of pursuing the highest growth strategy. You're so caught up in the VC system, right? Yeah. And I think like when I criticize venture, a lot of what I criticize is the sort of like attitude of excess and like either hype driven or FOMO driven decision making. I personally don't have a fundamental issue with like you raise money so that you can do these things and get to these milestones. And then you raise some more money because you've proven right. traction and then you do these things to get to these milestones. I don't have a fundamental issue with that. That's but- beautiful. I love that. If anything, we've moved away from that in some ways where companies were able to raise it without hitting the milestones. That's right. Well, and there's instances where we say like, okay, like, and we've had conversations with our companies where they'll get offers at you know a certain valuation from certain firms and they'll have lower offers from other folks at other firms. 
And in some instances, we will help them think about like, hey, here's the weight around your neck at that valuation. Can you raise that? Yes. Is it nice to not take that extra dilution? For sure. But it's important for you to be honest with yourself about, all right, what does that give you? If you really ramp up and grow, that gives you a year and a half, two years before you need to raise again. In two years, what if these six things go wrong? Because in startups, it's usually not six things, it's 12 things. But it's like, what if these six, seven things go wrong? Can you still get to a point where you feel comfortable with the milestones you hit? And at those milestones, can you raise at a valuation that is a nice markup from where you were? And if you can't, it makes more sense to accept a little bit more dilution now than to put a weight around your neck of evaluation. That's also true of the partner. We spend a lot of time, I mean, we're a pretty collaborative firm because at least right now we're not leading at series A and beyond. And so a lot of times people think of us as this sort of trusted, even in the later stage rounds that we do invest in the series A, series B, people will come to us and say, hey, I am having conversations with these two or three firms. How do we think about that? And we right. spend a lot of time advising on not just evaluation, but also the partner. Like this partner might give you a way higher valuation than this one, but hey, we know so-and-so and we've worked with them before and we, and we know your business and we know that what you're going to deal with over the next 12, 18 months is this thing that whether it's you know go-to-market commercialization, whatever, that person is going to be an incredible partner to you, which I think is like the last you know like remaining sort of solid part of venture is that there are still in almost every firm really exceptional individual partners. Like maybe the firms right. have strategies that are good fits for different things. But at every firm, I could point to a handful of people and say, if you are doing this thing in this space at this stage, that is who you want in your corner helping you. And so we spend a lot of time also thinking about that. So you're sort of touching on something that I'm fascinated on, both what you're talking about now and how contrary positions itself, which is sort of like, the information ecosystem in the private markets, right? Because on the one hand, you're like me and that you're trying to sort of publish things and facts, reports on how private companies are doing. On the other hand, you're sort of saying, you know, we have this private sort of information about which partners we've worked about, who's sort of trustworthy, who's worth taking in a lower valuation, whatever. I think a lot about this, like part of what I'm doing, I think is sort of, taking advantage of the fact that Silicon Valley, you know, it's not illegal to trade on insider information, right? If anything, it's the job of VCs to have tons of inside information. So there's all this sort of, there are these like public secrets or like if you're a top investor in SaaS, you probably have a sense of what deals your competitors have done over the last couple of months, even if they haven't been published and vice versa. And so in some ways, I'm just sort of saying, okay, VC, you've grown up. This is a bigger thing. You can't hold these secrets among a hundred people and expect that everybody else who's trying to compete shouldn't have that information and have sort of a chance to use that information to be competitive, right? Like the basically in VC overall, the sort of backroom deals that like a Michael Arrington might have written about, where like VCs were literally like colluding on the prices of rounds. Now, you know, there's enough sort of competition that you know, I can build a business sort of providing people information about what's going on and trying to expose some of these secrets. So that's sort of how I think about it. And to me, I guess what I want to know is just, yeah, how you think about this relationship for your own business of what you expose and what you hold like is information for your founders and how you think generally of this sort of the secrecy of the private markets changing over time. 
Again, similarly, I think there are like a few things happening that sometimes get conflated but are not always exactly the same thing. On the one hand, you have the like trust between a founder and an investor. And a founder gets to decide how much building in public they want to do, so to speak. And it's not on me to decide like how much information should be out there. So if the founder doesn't want their valuation to be known, that's a decision that they make or whatever, or specific details, how many term sheets they had, whatever. I think that is... But if a founder goes to 100 people, or sorry, 50, I just feel like there's a level of like non-public information that if you have shared it so widely that it is like chattered about, you haven't done like the diligence to like hold that information. You know, you're basically Mm -hmm. saying only like an elite class gets to know the information and that the sort of aspiring class of like investors or whoever, employee, potential employees, whoever doesn't get to know it. I guess I'm saying, isn't there a level of like care to your secrets that you need to maintain if you expect to maintain secrets? Well, I I think founders are in a tricky situation in that regard, because I think that on the one hand, like to your point, it's like, if you're going to 50 people, that's so many people. And it's like, well, like, especially in this environment, in many instances, like it's hard to know who will do what. Like I'm actually, there have been instances where I've been surprised where I was like, man, I thought so-and-so was closed for business, but looked like they did this thing or that thing or whatever, or they did this thing and they got really aggressive about it. Whereas every other thing I've sent them, they haven't been even willing to look at or whatever. So there's always a level of like VCs are you know, manic depressives in some w- regard. And so like, <laughs> they don't know what they want. How are you supposed to know? And so you kind of right, right. you have to cast a broad net to 50 people. Right. It's just part of the engine, right? And then in terms of like, hey, like you have, you've shared all this stuff with these people. It's like, well, yeah, but that's because I need those people to do a thing. If I have like a customer list, like I have a customer, a list of all my customers' names and how much they're paying me, I don't want my competitor to have that information, right? Because it's early stage. Like we're still figuring out our product. And if that person can go name by name and say, hey, we'll give you a $5,000 discount or we can do this and we know they can't or whatever. And we didn't even know you were working with them. Like, I don't want that out there. So there is a spectrum of like, they should have some privacy still as they're trying to build what is a very difficult thing to build and they don't need to share all that stuff. Like there's some elements of that in most companies. That's like a different thing. I think the thing you're really talking about more so is this like gossip economy that exists in venture where it's like you get rewarded for knowing who did what and where and why and when and whatever. And I think that I struggle with that because it feels like Not so much like that it's because like there's lots of industries that are gossipy, like lawyers gossip about who's defending who or whatever. Like there's gossip everywhere. The difference is that it reinforces that I have another piece that I'm working on right now, sort of a play on Patrick O'Shaughnessy's podcast, but it's just invest like the rest. This idea of like, we are just a bunch of lemmings of capital, just chasing everybody off the cliff and stuff. And I feel like one of the things I don't love is that the sort of rumor mill it just like reinforces dramatically this feeling of FOMO. What's his name? Rashad at Redpoint that does a lot of their content. He had a TikTok about this yesterday where like after they close an investment, he's like, so who else did you have term sheets from? And they're like, oh, it's just you guys. And he's like, no, but you, I like you were talking to other people. Like, who were you talking to? And they're like, well, right. like we sent them the data room, but they never responded. And he's like, right. right. Oh man. <laughs> and like the fear of like, not only right. is it right. helping you make the decision, but it's making you question the decision after the fact when you find out, totally. oh, right. nobody else cared about this thing. Right. That's the right. stuff that I think is like pretty unhealthy. Whereas like in public markets, you kind of wear your pride and your shame right out in the open. 
because you've right. got a 13 F and you have to say like, my portfolio is my thesis. And like, here you go. Right. I've got money. And I mean, you look at like Kathy Wood and it's like AI is one of five pillars or whatever. And she sold like 60% of her NVIDIA position four or five Insane. months ago. Right. And it's like, that, I don't know, man. I feel like everybody, like that's the thing you should have been betting on if that's your vibe. <laughs> right. And right. it's like, but hey, she has to wear that shame publicly. Right. And it's like, that's a different vibe than in venture. And I think that is unhealthy. Yeah, the gossip economy. I mean, and you're right, but that sort of in some ways aligns with what I'm saying is that these are very loosely held secrets, right? If you're raising around, you almost want the gossip that like Sequoia's looking at me, Benchmark's looking at me. You're like they're not necessarily, I don't, the founders are not generally like leaking that directly to me, but they are definitely like letting it be known like, oh, we're talking to blah, blah, blah. And so then it gets out to a wide range of competitor VCs who might I think in the founders' minds, push up the price and make Sequoia pay whatever like the market should be, right? And those games are happening over and over again. And it's just so barely, you know, if, if the I just think if the information is getting out so widely that it's almost it's just like sketchy to me that it's I don't know, that it's not publicly talked about. Having spent time at Code 2, you've seen the like how public market investors work. And I have right. a lot of respect for that. Like there is a specific paradigm of disclosure and companies have to share things and everybody has the same information and it's illegal not to. And companies are forced to articulate their business in a very specific way. Right. I think that there is a lot that the private markets could learn from that. And I wrote this other piece about the professionalization of startups, but it's basically to your point a little bit about venture, but it's true of startups as well is that this is not necessarily the same as like the sort of 80s and 90s old school, everybody's building in a garage, whatever, like building startups has to some extent become professionalized where like the playbooks are known, the principles are known, the tools are there, everybody has them, whatever. And so I think that as you lift that, both venture and startup building in general could learn something from sort of public market disclosure. I don't disagree with that. I think there could be a lot more transparency. What's your view on you know, like I imagine a hedge fund, like a public market investor, obviously they have to follow all these rules we're talking about but they buy satellite imagery and try and figure out how many cars there are in the Walmart parking lot ahead of the quarter. Like that's the sort of dream, right? You have these like data sources that give you an edge that are sort of not material, non-public information. But what's your sense of like the top private market investors and how much they have a data edge, right? I mean, they have all the companies they looked at. They're obviously building sort of like multiples and, you know, they're building models based on the private companies they see that other people don't have. What's your view as someone who's like thrusting, I guess I'm particularly interested in your perspective, both having worked at these places, but also as someone who in some ways is thrusting information into the public about private markets by, you know, writing these research reports on startups. How much intelligence do you think good firms have relative to what is on the open internet? I think you'd be surprised how much information there is out there. Because it's also to your point of like founders go out and tell 50 enters their stuff, right? If they have 100 customers, those customers also know quite a bit about their stuff. And so right. there's an element of like anytime you interact with anybody, there is information leakage. And so like Tegas exists literally based on my ability to go talk to a ton of customers and ask them questions. And not all of them are going to be super flattering. Like I've had plenty of calls where right. people are like, yeah, we're probably going to turn off anytime soon. And it's like, well, that's a 
relevant insight, you know? Right. And it's like, maybe the, I actually had instances where there are times when like, I will relay that information to a founder and say, Hey, I was chatting right. with somebody. I'm doing this call. We're looking at whatever. And it's like, just, so you know, like that person is not happy with this and this, like you should know that right. like, there is this sort of information economy that flows. And so right. I think that the magic eight ball, you know, type of data that doesn't exist a lot because even like stuff like a lot of open source investors or this is true in AI, this is true in data infrastructure more broadly. A lot of folks think about things like GitHub traction and GitHub stars and stuff like that. Yeah. You can buy GitHub stars the same way you can buy Twitter followers. So right. there's a lot of that stuff that it's like, yeah, like you can use it as like a relevant data point to like, look, it's up and to the right. But if you're making right. a decision on that, you're probably making a bad decision. Again, like it's like really specific businesses like I've seen different firms buy credit card data and even map it to private company information. And so you can see certain transactions for like consumer companies and stuff like that. There is elements of that's like, that's not accessible to everyone. You got to pay. I mean, in many cases, those are, you know, six figure contracts you have to have with data providers. Not everybody has that, but definitely the largest AUM firms do. My intuitions on private information really go back and forth because on the one hand, you know, the internet is such a powerful force. And a lot of times when you try to build something with, you know, some private, you know, I, there are various projects I have to try and like collect private information. It is like the internet is so strong, right? You're, and if it's like valuable to some people, there's just like a lot of pressure to put it online. So to beat the internet is like very challenging. On the other hand, you know, as we've been talking about for the last couple of minutes, there's, you know, there are these private conversations. People are getting access. I mean, whenever I publish like slides from one of these investors that sort of outline their returns, I do just wonder like how widely known is that and how organized, I guess, are sort of the big players in terms of thinking about their competitors, their competitors' portfolio companies and building a map of the world that's not online. I think that it is a, for most people, it is a pretty deliberate exercise. Cause like, for example, and this is one of the reasons, you know, Sequoia will say that they focus on taking from specific charitable organizations like that as LPs because they want to serve those missions, which is fair. <laughs> like that's not a, but that's they not like a, to keep it secret. Yeah. That's also why they, right. Anybody, anybody, right. any fund who has taken money from specific types of institutions Anybody right. with a pitch book login can see their returns right. because those, at least right. to some extent, some funds, whatever, because those people have to disclose it. So I think that there are really deliberate choices that people make to protect certain types of information and stuff like that. Like there's always this back and forth with people who are trying really hard to protect information and people who are really good at going and finding information. So I think that that like economy will always exist. I feel like the bigger question is like, would it make it healthier if more of this stuff was out in the open, if more funds right. had to be releasing, because it's the same thing with hedge funds too, right? You can go look at hedge funds performance. If more private funds had to be releasing their performance data, more companies had to be releasing financial data, whatever. And like, I feel like the answer is yes. I do think that level of transparency and that account, I'm in the, I'm in the bucket of like, I think that being a publicly traded company is a good way to force you to be healthier. It does make it right. hard to like innovate, right? Because when you're so focused on quarterly things, but I think that is a deliberate, like you can choose to not care about that stuff in a, at least to some extent and do right. okay. But some of that stuff keeps you in check. I think there's value to that, but I think there is this like give and take of like, yeah, but also building an early stage company is really freaking hard and changes on a dime every week. And to right. then have to turn around and say, yeah, but did you file your 10Q? 
And it's like, dude, like, I don't know if I'm going to make payroll next week. Like, I'm not worrying about those forms or whatever. Right. And certainly, yeah. I mean, the bureaucracy, I'm also supportive of the idea that, you know, like early stage is like a people game. And so like having trusted relationships matters. And so it doesn't necessarily need to be this like big circle where it's just like whoever's willing to pay you the highest price. It's just interesting. I don't have a strong ideological thing. Obviously, my business is thrusting things into public, but I would do that, I guess, whether or not I felt like there was like some strong ideal, like whether the private markets should totally be transparent or not. Anyway, fascinating. I want to move on to the AI stuff. I mean, it sort of bridges back to the earlier part of this conversation, which is just sort of the euphoria and sort of groupthink in VC. You sort of mentioned that you're looking at some of the open source projects. Is AI or large language models, foundation models, in your mind, you know, transformational shift? Or is this VCs have a, a sort of a great desire to deploy capital and momentum invest, and this is like the best excuse they have to get back to their old ways. <laughs> Multiple things can be true at one time. <laughs> exactly. I knew that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I let you be the nuanced one. I, you know, live in the world of black and white. Um, so I will say that AI fervor and like the dynamics of building AI companies is a match made in heaven for the capital agglomeration industrial complex, if you will, right? <laughs> There's our headline, yeah. If you're trying to raise a crap ton of money and deploy it into things that eat a crap ton of money, AI is a pretty good place to do it, right? At least now, like even somebody pointed out recently, the like the like step function costs decline in training models and stuff, which is true. Like that's a really important trend to understand is that Building AI is not always going to be as expensive as it is today. Like there's a bunch of things that were changing. Sam Altman talked about the sort of the next generation of AI or whatever is not going to be about the largest model. There's other ways to drive higher quality models than just can we add more parameters or whatever. But in, the, in this moment in time, you have companies that eat a ridiculous amount of capital and people who have a ridiculous amount of capital and are too afraid of most things, but are very excited to deploy capital into this thing. And I personally, I don't know that that is a good thing. Like, I think that there are a lot of these AI hyped investments and companies that this is just going to be another 2020, like the same hangover that we're dealing with from 2021's excess. We're going to deal with that again in a lot of these companies. Right. For the listeners, like, why are they still talking about Uber at the front of the conversation? In some ways... The AI thing is the blitz scaling thing, right? On demand, all the money was going to subsidize the network effect. Here we're going to like subsidize, you know, I don't know, a lot of synapse firings in large language models. But there's this same like, will that large investment pay off or is it, would it be wiser to work with like a smaller amount? Of but I, I do think that one of the things that people that is sort of gotten away in the narrative is how much marketing is a piece of this. Amjad, and in fact, at Cerebral Valley, Amjad made this point. He's made it again a couple of times. Amjad, the CEO of, CEO of Replit, yeah, CEO of Replit yeah. which is one of our companies. And I'm a huge fan of him. And I think he and I see eye to eye on a lot of things. But he made this point that Microsoft, like they would talk about sort of the first contact with AGI. And then they change it to like sparks of AGI and they talk about it differently. And it's like, it's for them, it's marketing. Like they're trying to get everybody talking about this thing. But there's this whole other world of people who have made their entire careers off of like doom storming around AI. 
and they love that and so they feed off of each other and it's just this like nightmare this right. nightmare cloud it's yeah. beautiful but like <laughs> right the companies that want to be hyped say it's like going to be the new coming of god and then the people who are like professional critics and want to testify before congress yeah, it, he's not a it's uh, not going to yeah. be a benevolent god that's their talking <laughs> point right <laughs> but I think that the thing that VCs get caught up in is that it's like, yeah, sick. Like these companies that can like, yeah, it's marketing and it's hype. And it's like, yeah, but like like looking at OpenAI as a startup success store. OpenAI is a great company. It's done a lot of great things. And like I think anybody who questions that is not paying attention. But thinking of OpenAI's success story as just another startup success story and it's just like Stripe and Airbnb and OpenAI – and it's like, no, like this is a company that has built a lot of what they've built and the scale they've built and the capabilities they've built and things like that off of 10, 11 billion dollars from Microsoft in, in many cases, right? Like, or at least billions of dollars from Microsoft and, and stuff. And it's like, that's a different thing. And they have different dependencies. And in some ways, doesn't not to discredit a lot of the things OpenAI has done, but in some ways they are a ridiculously successful subsidiary of Microsoft in the same way that AWS as a standalone business is a really exceptional business. It just lives within Microsoft. There are some parallels to that with OpenAI. Is like this is not really a thing that could be super easily accomplished outside of a massive, very entrenched and incentivized corporate hierarchy around it. And that's true of most foundation models is that like building those things is ridiculously expensive. It's, it's ridiculously general purpose. And so to effectively distribute and utilize these very generic models, like ChatGPT is good at a lot of things. It's great at basically nothing, which good is like, you know, good is means that every human being is sucks at most things. Like it's really good. But I mean, I literally copy edit my posts with it. It is really good million billionaires it's it, really good you know tells me to put things in active totally. voice like it's it's amazing it is amazing. And, and i feel like that is one of the reasons why people are so afraid to like try and draw a line because i don't I, and i feel like my mom reads my writing and she tells me that i caveat things too much in my writing like it's like just take a stand <laughs> but it's like i, I have all these caveats because <laughs> like i want to be like you know calling things out and trying to frame things but then people will come back at me and say, like, you don't get it. AI is game. And I'm like, listen, I absolutely get it. Like, I, I fundamentally believe that we are the world as we know it is going to be transformed by this technology. Like, I am a optimism maximalist through and through. Like, I am so excited about technology. I am so excited about the opportunity and the implications. But there are pockets within this world, some of which are better than others. And I think that massive concentration of power and influence with a technology like AI is really dangerous. And that is where we're heading. And it's really scary to see OpenAI talking so much about regulation because it's like, yeah, for sure they're going to be involved in the, they're going to be in the room where it happened, helping write the regulation right. that protects them. And like, that's really scary and intimidating. And I think OpenAI and Sam, like, they think of themselves as being the adult in the room. Like they're like, we have the people's best interests at heart, which again, even that, like I hesitate to criticize because Sam has, as far as I know, no economic interest in open AI per se. And it's like, that's allegedly. allegedly. That's right. so, and if, but if that's true, it's like, that's crazy. <laughs> and so I don't. I would love to see the, it's like, oh, open AI is the most infuri open. They really need to take it out of the net. It is the most infuriating. Obviously they are not open source. But beyond that, they are not a very open mm. company. You know what I mean? They, I, it drives there's me a insane. really good. So for contrary research, probably next month, we're going to put out a deep dive that digs into the openness of AI. 
And in one, a couple of sections, we talk about this, but several folks at OpenAI have been fairly like, what do they say? Like saying the quiet part out loud. But basically, like every time, pay attention, every time OpenAI talks about the sort of about shift that they took, where they were very open and they were very, we're going to share our research with the world. And right. then they said, just kidding, this is not a good idea. The first thing they'll talk about is safety. And the second thing they'll talk about is competition. Almost every right. single time <laughs> without fail, that's how right. they articulate right. it. And it is basically the mea culpa of like trying to cover themselves of there is like fiction and reality to some extent, where it's like, it's really important from a safety perspective. And from a competitive perspective, it's really difficult to build GPT-4 or whatever, which is true. But like that, just say the quiet part out loud. Like you guys are not this like benevolent, open for the benefit of the world. I feel like the way that I look at it and think about it and the way that we invest is I, rather than looking for like one thing that spikes, you look for a functional funnel. Even if it's very early, you look for something that become a functional funnel. And so the way I think about the funnel is you basically have at the very top, you have some kind of like user or open source engagement traction. People want to use this thing that you've built. They're very excited about it. Whether that's a lot of people in your community, it can't like GitHub stars to some extent, like any of those things that sort of just look like top of funnel engagement, that is valuable. Many people have made investments purely off of that. I heard more than one time people talk about in 2021 valuations in terms of a multiple of Discord users. And that is a deeply unhealthy thing to do. Like, that's not okay. Like, there's no wow, yeah. people are turning over their grave everywhere. Like, that's a really bad thing. But so, like, but like a lot of people, they invest just based on that engagement. That's one thing. And then you translate that into actual contribution. So at least within the sort of open source world, like there is the like foundation models competition. And I think that is largely going to be a very difficult place for there to be more than one maybe. But I think that is like, to some extent, it's maybe the next, you know, Facebook, Google, you know, oligopoly or whatever, but it's really difficult to know. And it has gotten away so fast. Like those other companies had time to like, Facebook was just like a, teenager tool for a while or whatever. And then it grew into it. This was like, is that the next thing? Here's a billion dollars. And it's like, oh man, this is tough to make a decision, you know? So it's like, I've not engaged with a lot of that stuff. And so instead I'm focusing on this funnel where it's like, is there engagement? Is there actual contribution? Are there people who are meaningfully using and taking advantage of a tool they've built? But then does that translate into an actual enterprise grade product like, is there something more than just facilitating? And there's a lot of really great companies that today are still largely facilitating. They're starting to do things that look like other parts of the funnel. Like Hugging Face is a really great company from a business model perspective. Like most of what they have done is sort of engagement and enablement. But in terms of turning that into a foundational product, like enterprise grade product that they can go sell and have, you know, multi-figure ACVs and stuff like that, like that doesn't exist per se. And there's not a really clear right. path to that. And there's a lot of companies that... Well, a lot uh, of these totally. you think will have you know better open versions totally. of the open source. I mean, Hugging Face obviously benefits from the and GitHub metaphor and people are like, GitHub figured it out, they'll figure it for out. For what it's worth, I think Hugging Face is a phenomenal business. My fear is that it's like, there is a difference between a phenomenal business that has... Because even GitHub took a long time to become what it is. And a lot of that came from Microsoft having a really established DNA for commercialization and distribution. And so I don't want to say that GitHub didn't do anything, but like they built a really important place for people to be. 
but the long term was fuzzy yeah. for a really long time. And Microsoft kind of made the long term make sense. And for a lot of these companies, it's just a question of like, I don't, I just don't know. Like I, the long term could be phenomenal for a lot of these companies. Maybe they crush it and they figure stuff out. But right now it's not clear. My preference is for companies that can at least articulate what that long term potential is. Like, how do you take the engagement and the contribution and translate it into something commercial? One of our portfolio companies, a company named called Nomic, which is still very early, but they have had you know, really high engagement on... So they basically built a model called GPT for All, which is effectively an open source mm. GPT model. It uses a fraction of the compute. It can run locally. So for things like healthcare and government use cases, like they're way more likely to use that than they are to use something like OpenAI. But then, so they sort of, it took off, like it crushed it. It has now, I think, about as much open source traction as something like Langchain and stuff like that. They've really done well. Hmm. But where that translates down the funnel is that originally the company where they started was building a data visualization tool for fine-tuning models. And so it can, we have this really sick, if you, oh, you, we, I know you were at Contrary NYC for an event a couple months ago. I don't know if you saw yeah. it. We have this really sick portrait up in the space Oh, yeah, I think yeah. I remember. Exactly. So it's basically, yeah. it is stable diffusion cool. visualized in dots, but you can use mm. that to then understand how these different parameters are playing with each other and then train the model mm. based on, hey, we think these sections are not relevant for the model that we're trying to train or dig in and fine tune mm. and stuff like that. And it's awesome. This visual, I keep telling they should sell this because it's so cool, but like they have things like Kermit the Frog Corner where it's like, here's all the images in stable diffusion that are leveraged right. to then create Kermit the Frog output or mm. whatever. But like they've done really well at having, again, super early. Like it's not like they're going to be 100 million of ARR next month or whatever, anything like that. Right. But they've done a really good job of, our t of taking open source traction, people are really excited, translating that into contribution. Really exceptional people are engaging with their tool. But then this all translates down into, hey, when you start using these models and you say, I want to be able to train a model, a unique model in a way that's scalable, but still doesn't require a massive amount of compute. And it's like, well, Atlas, their data visualization tool that's how they built GPT for all. And so by being a customer of Atlas, you can then engage in models, even open source models in a much more meaningful way. I love that funnel. And there are a few businesses that have that funnel, but that is what I have been looking for in AI as opposed to like, boy, is this hot? Who knows where it goes, but it's hot. Like that <laughs> stuff just makes me so right. anxious, especially, right. I don't know, like I feel like I paid attention, you know, 2021 and it's like a lot of that stuff did not end well. In a small subset of venture, this feels almost more yeah, hype, more fervent, the amount of money. Obviously it's complicated by the hyperscalers. Yeah. Anyway, we could talk about it all day. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You know, when I launched Newcomer, I articulated a vision of contrarian optimism. I think these journalism had been so negative. So certainly feel a sort of kindred spirit in both trying to be optimistic while being somewhat contrarian so great to get to talk to you on yeah no this is super fun i feel like we see things eye to eye for sure also i've been told multiple times that we look very similar i think the beard and yeah, the glasses the hat yeah, i was gonna let the viewer like put that <laughs> together themselves but yeah we even wore like is your hat's black yeah. mine's like on my cerebral valley the headphones aren't helping cause. they're not a normal right. accessory i know but it's adding to it <laughs> right yeah i think we they're the exact same headphones. exact headphones not great. so yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's been anyway. fun thank you for having me all right thanks a bunch Thanks so much. That's our episode. I'm Eric Newcomer. This has been the Newcomer Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Kyle Harrison at Contrary. Welcome. Shout out to Vanta for sponsoring this episode. Thanks so much 
to Tommy Heron, our audio editor, Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Young Chomsky, for the wonderful theme music. Find us at newcomer.co. Subscribe if you haven't already. That's the lifeblood of this podcast and newsletter. Paid subscribers to Newcomer, but also we appreciate your likes, your comments, your reviews on Apple Podcasts. We're on YouTube, we're on Spotify, we're on Apple, wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.